Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand what your company is worth and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business, build a valuable company to be proud of, and exit on your terms. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 168, and if you've ever been curious of what a family office is, Could they be a buyer of your company? What are their motives? How is it different than private equity? Then today is a must listen to because family offices are becoming more and more viable and more and more popular for an exit route for mid-market companies. If you're not familiar with them, it's, you know, very large, wealthy individuals and families that have a portfolio of real estate, stocks, bonds, et cetera. And they have determined that buying and holding mid-market, small, privately held companies is one of the asset classes that they want. Again, your business is an asset class for a particular particular investor. So a family office has completely different motives and timelines and mechanisms at their disposal compared to private equity. Where private equity has a three to seven year window to buy, sell, and then liquidate so they can give the money back to, and the capital back to their limited partners, and then the private equity firms make their money. Where a family office, if you just think about it, they don't have a reason to sell the business unless it absolutely makes sense. They can hold it forever because they have enough money and they have a long, long haul in mind because they're looking for asset appreciation and a diversification in their portfolio. And I find it very interesting because as a lot of people that I interview in this show, the title, the title of the podcast is called Life After Business. It's about perpetuating your legacy, making sure that you're happy, and a family office exit might be an amazing exit because they have a completely different mindset potentially than a lot of other private equity firms. Today in the show, I have Paul Moffitt, who is working for a local family office here in the Twin Cities that is a large, wealthy family that has a diversification from banks, commercial real estate, real estate construction, and he works for them in the sector of their family office that is out looking for mid-market privately held companies to invest in, to buy out the owner. He shares with us their deal structures, their investment thesis, how they deal with management, their overall intentions, and why they're out 
buying companies. And it's very interesting because Paul started out as a banker. So he was helping finance using debt. So he's flipped it and he knows that there's the ability using the family office structure to be able to buy out the owner of a and founder of a uh, first or second generation privately held company and help perpetuate that business in the legacy because of their long-term investment strategies. So there's a lot to learn in this episode and I highly recommend it because when you're thinking about selling in, oh, to a third party, it's an option that you should really consider and force your investment banker to consider it as well if they have not brought anybody to the table because they're out there, they've got money, they have reasons to spend it, and they have resources that might check a lot of your boxes other than the traditional private equity or third party strategic purchase. So if you want to understand more about how this whole world works, check out one of our upcoming upcoming growth and exit boot camps. They're in Dayton and Minnesota every other month, and it's two days jam-packed full of understanding how businesses are valued, how to calculate net proceeds to identify your financial targets, the difference between the mechanisms and the back-end structures of family offices, private equity, ESOPs, third-party transitions, and understanding how those impact your financial targets, and then ways to increase the value of your company using the eight functional areas of a business and de-risking your company so that way you can increase your net proceeds, and how to hire the right team of advisors that is specialized in the M&A, specialize in your transition or transaction, has the right motives, the right skill sets, gets paid in line with your outcome, and that understands what you want so that way they can optimize your entire plan. There's one in Dayton, Ohio on the 12th and 13th of November, and then in Minnesota on the 3rd and 4th of December. And I highly recommend it. If you got any questions, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to walk you through the agenda. Otherwise, enjoy this interview with Paul. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Three days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Three days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of the journey. Morning, Paul. How are you doing? Morning. I'm doing well, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, you know, for the listeners, uh, we, you know, you and I got introduced by a mutual friend. You're here in the Twin Cities, and you've got a very interesting background of how you've landed to where you're at. And as you and I were talking, we're like, hey, you know what? I, I, I was really thinking, I'm like, I haven't done an interview with someone where we kind of covered all the different types of financial buyers, kind of like the back end structure. As my listeners have gotten more educated on, you know. The, because not one private equity firm is the same, essentially. <laughs> and then you got all the different other types of family offices and search funds, et cetera. And you and I just had such a good conversation about the things that you were running into in the market from, you know, companies that aren't ready and the different things that, you know, the competition. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the show. But for the listeners that aren't familiar with you or your, the company you're working for, let, let's go back and, you know, how in the heck did you get to the point where you are? Because you, even you and I always said on the phone, is like, what we were talking about within the first couple of minutes, not a lot of people could probably sit down and like be able to contribute to the conversation because of the complexities of what the world that you're dealing with. So how did you get interested in finance, private equity, money, and where, where did you all start? Sure. Well, I started my career in banking in Chicago, primarily commercial lending, serving middle market you know, companies, which has different definitions to different people. But you know, think of companies that are, say, $10 million to in my case, uh, 100 million or so in revenue. So that was my early start out of school and had a good career there at a bank in Chicago. And then we were bought out by a much larger money center bank and all left and went to different different sort of regional 
banks and, you know, kind of brought our big bank experience to these other banks. And it was, um, that was a fun time. It was just sort of on the eve of the recession. Since that time, I married a woman from St. Paul. So it was an eventuality that we would move up to the <laughs> Twin Cities. You lost the battle. <laughs> yep, we we did that. And uh, it's been a great home and a great place to raise kids, continue my career in banking, sort of growing my experience, you know, again, serving middle market clients, hearing their issues, understanding their challenges, but really helping them to sort of grow their companies. And then I was connected sort of out of the blue, very much unanticipated to this group Encore One, which I'd never heard of before. They don't have a web presence. We still don't today. But uh, regardless, it was a really interesting and unique opportunity for a banker with plenty of sort of deal experience in the senior lending uh, spectrum, but never having you know been on the buy side or the equity side of a transaction necessarily. And Encore One is part of a family office. And so that's a word that's becoming more and more vogue. And you hear about it. Family offices have sort of all kinds of different stripes, but it's out there. I don't know that business owner community knows about it as much, but certainly the deal community is kind of familiar with the concept. But mm -hmm. I had some familiarity a couple of years ago and, you know, recognize it as a unique opportunity. Encore One has actually been around for 20 years and it was really set up. It was the, you know, brainchild of Jerry Roundhorst and people in the Twin Cities might be familiar with the Roundhorst family and, and their business, uh, their sort of primary public business that they own, a 65-year-old construction company called the Opus Group. And really interesting story and somewhat relatable oftentimes to business owners is Jerry was thinking about, you know, his own legacy and transition plan as well. And the idea for him was that, you know, upon his death, most of the ownership of the Opus Group, the construction company, would get transferred to this family trust for the benefit of future generations of, of Round Horse family members. But recognizing that, you know, not all family members would have an interest necessarily in managing and, and running a, a large national construction company wanted to sort of ensure the, the safety and long-term viability of, of that business and their ownership. And so the idea was to set up Encore One, again, 20 years ago, very progressive, as a sister company to the Opus Group. And Encore One is really just a holding company in which the employees here, we make, evaluate and make direct investments in middle market operating companies. So that was the through line for me, mm -hmm. calling on the same types of businesses that I did in banking, but hopefully solving a different problem, creating a liquidity event, you know, upon the, the sale and eventual retirement of the, the business owner. And typically the founder could be second generation or third generation in some cases, it, you know, providing the liquidity that, liquidity that they need and, and they've earned over years and years of work, but also uh, gaining something else, creating a legacy for themselves and some comfort knowing that their business is now going to remain independent, run by the management team that really helped grow the business mm -hmm. potentially. And because we're owned in this trust structure and a sister company to Opus, we are also, you know, just sort of it lends credibility to the idea that we're long-term investors because we're owned in this legal corporate structure that really can carry on for generations. As long as there's future generations uh, of round horse family members, there's a reason for Encore One to exist and, mm -hmm. and also to continue to 
you know, diversify the family wealth away from real estate development and construction, which it turns <laughs> which, out is cyc- yeah. cyclical and risky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, well, so I'm super, I, I want to unpack all this because I think you, you kind of gave a great framework, Paul, and, and we can kind of take those bite-sized chunks along the way because first of all, just a funny comment because you talk about now you're providing liquidity versus just making sure that you're loading people with debt and getting personal guarantees, right? <laughs> you're doing the, literally on the, on the exact opposite side of the, of the table. <laughs> right. And sometimes those things are necessary too for growth. But like I said, just solving a yeah. different problem, you know, that, you know, I guess in the, along the, the spectrum or the continuum of a life cycle of a, a business and, yep. and family ownership. Sure. Well, I think what's, what's interesting, I want to kind of maybe like start with you, the, the commercial banking, the stuff that you're seeing and then how you're like, how it's different when you're looking at a company like this, because you know, the, when you look at the the i was actually did a panel last night and you know growth consumes capital right which is why bankers are in business which makes sense but then you know your your combination of debt and equity is different right and so i think you know i'm curious and like as you're going into this like how um you know how that combination and what we'll kind of get into the 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 structures of your guys's um investments and the 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 trust versus having a, a traditional a private equity, because I think the blend is what ends up making it different. And so I'm curious of like, you know, sorry, I'm just kind of rambling, but the, like, what is it that you saw in some of the big problems that you saw in commercial banking that like, that got you excited about what you were about to do? Um, I think oftentimes, and it's a question, sometimes the, the banker or uh, you know, the, you know, the, the creditor might ask of his, or her borrower is, you know, what is your transition plan? By the way, because the bank's looking over time to get repaid and, <laughs> yep. you know, sometimes whether it's, you know, wanting to exit or retire uh, from a business or, you know, other, other issues that aren't so great to talk about, you know, what if, what if this key decision maker and owner is, you know, gets hit by the proverbial truck or that kind of thing. So oftentimes you'd find there's no transition plan. And, and, and so, I guess that was a, a problem I sort of identified, you know, mm-hmm. from time to time, not in every situation. And a lot of times, you know, families and business owners had really great transition plans in, in mind and were transitioning ownership through, you know, different structures potentially. So, but, but more often than not, particularly in the lower middle market, you know, what we're, what we're talking about here and what the types of businesses Encore One is targeting, you know, is often a problem. So mm-hmm. again, having that experience, recognizing that it is a problem out there and, there's lots of statistics to kind of back it up as far as, you know, the number of companies that have in fact identified and written down and, and executed or developed a transition plan, you know, don't necessarily exist. So Which now is, sort yeah. of being on the other <laughs> side of that issue and maybe being able to create, you know, a solution or, you know, at least one option, one alternative for, you know, different types of transition plans is, is, is what I'm doing now in the role as being part of a, a family office. Mm-hmm. I love it. So, okay, let's, uh, so what I, what I think we could do is let's cover the different types of financial buyers because that'll will build up to the point of like how family offices and your structures are different than the other ones. And because like, you know, we got search funds, we got private equity firms, we have family offices and each one of those categories can be vastly different from each other alone. So maybe mm-hmm. let's, like, why don't you give your definition of, you know, what you see in the kind of the different buckets and what you what your definition of each of those would be? Sure. First of all, I think in any of those examples, you know, most people would tell you if you've met one private equity firm or, you know, one group of uh, independent investors or one family office, 
you've met one private equity group, <laughs> yeah. group of independent investors or family office. I mean, they're all really set up, you know, differently, you know, generally sort of broadly speaking, you know, there are sort of what they call now long dated or long, more long-term oriented equity groups out there. They're recognizing that that is an attractive, you know, potential outcome for some business owners that they're not going to go through the usual, you know, growth spurt supported by the private equity group, but then, you know, an ultimate exit of that business, you know, potentially in three, five, seven years, that, that type of thing. So they're, you know, not, not quite as long-term oriented. The group of independent investors is, is really interesting as well, just because, you know, they're very flexible. They don't necessarily usually have a fund structure to sort of answer to. You might have a couple of individuals with different industry experience that they can bring to bear at the business. You know, that's potentially attractive. Uh, they're, I, I guess, as the name implies, they're sort of independent. But I think in, you know, they're successful. They exist for a reason. So do private equity groups. I think, you know, the challenge sometimes with a group of independent investors, if you're trying to sell your your business, for example, to them is that you also have a, a group of independent agendas, you know, as well. And it's sometimes unclear, you know, where the money's coming from, who's got the availability, the liquidity, the interest in the business, you know, might have, and then those, those people, their individuals, you know, might have different needs for liquidity or would like their capital returned to them in some time frame, you know, it might not be five or seven years. It could be longer. It could be shorter. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So, you know, there's not a real hard and fast rule per se, as far as when they, or, you know, target date when they it's need to return their capital, but it could surprise you, you a, at any time. Um, right, you know, cause you have a, because you have a bunch of just like, I mean, in the independent investors, I mean, you just have a bunch of randomly wealthy people that come together and form some sort of operating agreement or entity or something like that to, to then purchase a business or two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, there's some some challenges and limitations, but like I said as well, some some benefits potentially that could be a good fit in the right situations. And then there's, you know, family offices, which similarly, I think would, you know, market and pitch themselves as not having the typical fund dynamics, you know, to answer to. They don't have investors or LPs that, you know, are requiring their their money back or their investment or principal, that, that sort of thing. So that's attractive. It's usually a single source of, you know, capital, whether it's a mix of equity and sometimes mezzanine financing, but not always. There's oftentimes separate, you know, depending on the wherewithal of the family and the type of deal necessarily that they're targeting, you know, they might be more interested in sort of like the independent group, you know, chipping in a portion of the enterprise value of that business. They might prefer to be an, a minority investor because they don't have the capacity or the depth of management to take a real active role in at the board level supporting and growing a business. You know, they might have some, expectation that, you know, by, you know, sharing an investment, you know, that they get to divvy up due diligence costs, et cetera. And it also, you know, potentially sort of a, a friendly group of competitors in that respect, they can kind of increase each other's deal flow. So, but again, all different, all different mm -hmm. stripes of, you know, potentially potential different, different interests in that sort of group. We're also, you know, would put ourselves in the family office category. However, I think we're sort of uniquely positioned. And the thing I haven't seen necessarily is that we're owned in really these generation skipping family trusts. So the trusts are designed to last in perpetuity. The family's always going to be in the construction business. So we always need to be diversified away from the construction business. And our goal is 
again, that diversification, but really growth and capital appreciation. There's never a need for the big exit at the end of some time period to return liquidity to the investors because there are no investors. It's really just funds that are held at the uh, at the trust level. So when we're making uh, an investment, you know, it's one check. It's coming from Encore One and really our family trust in this case, and it's really long-term oriented. So that's the way we look at and support the businesses that we invest in and the management teams for that matter. And that can be attractive to the seller. They're getting their liquidity. They're getting full, hopefully full market value out of their business, but they're also getting this sort of altruistic benefit where they get the comfort of knowing that the business is going to remain independent long-term. It's not you know, being sold to a strategic. It's not eventually going to get flipped to a strategic in the in the future, in some future time period, or sold to a larger private equity fund. And the management team is really going to get a, a huge benefit out of running the business, supporting its growth. Encore One is here to support M&A opportunities, inorganic growth opportunities, other investments. And those are things the management team will benefit from that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten under the previous ownership structure, who was maybe aging out and maybe sort of less inclined to plow more money back into the business or take on new risks or, you know, entertain new growth initiatives to enter new markets and that kind of thing. So that can be really invigorating the management as well. Well, and, and I agree. So that, what, what, what I think we should do is like, because we, you covered a lot there, which is awesome. And but I went on, maybe what I can do is like, I'll want to compare private, the traditional private equity structure to yours and family offices, because so the, for the listeners to get a little bit of relativity of like, okay, what are the actual differences? I mean, cause like, okay, I'll give us some background. So I think there's like 6,000 private equity firms. And again, this is just for context. So the t- typical private equity firm, the limited partners, the investors invest into a fund that then the managers, the, the general partners have to then manage that money. They get typically a 2% management fee so they can have revenue to go find deals. And then those managers, like let's say, Paul, you and I actually had a fund, right? We would then go find a deal and then you and I might be making whatever our salary is, but we might not have generational wealth. And then we buy, we buy these companies. And then when we return, what, you know, we have like a specific time frame of that fund to then sell it because those private those uh, inv- investors need their money back, right? For their pensions or their insurance products or whatever it is. So that's what you're saying. Like you have to sell it, right? And like if you and I own that PE firm, we would then get an upside of after that internal rate of return. These that was you know essentially promised to that those investors. We'd be able to split it, you know, and get twenty percent of the upside or something. So you and I wouldn't get our money until the companies were sold. So compare that. Because I think we can do this. I think what we should do with Paul is compare this stuff, and then we can go into like the management and how that ha- how that impacts the legacy. But explain how that's different with what you guys like your structure. Right. So the equity group is incentivized, as you said, to sell it, and they get the share and the upside of you know the the money that they managed or the you know additional equity uh, that that they generated as well. And so, you know, that's a very, you know, genuine motivation and and understandable why that would be the case. Yeah. In our business, um, you know, I'm not a family member. I'm not a a general partner, nor are the uh, individuals that I work with. So um, we're compensated entirely differently as employees of the business of Encore One. And and there's certainly, uh, you know, salary and bonus opportunities and some additional upside, but it's really only related to the growth of the company in which, you know, we're paid 
like most employees at, at many companies and financial services companies annually are our salary and, and bonus compensation. So it's different. You know, we're not managing for some sort of exit. The other element of what you said, and, and oftentimes the typical private equity group today, you know, the incentive that they offer or either the management team or maybe even the seller to kind of stick around is, we'll, you know, offer you some great value for your company and we're going to allow you to roll 20% of your equity. But who's going to pay for that equity? How do you ever get your 20% out of the business? You get it out once you sell it to a third party. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, no bones about it. And I'm sure that there's a firm understanding between sellers and, and equity groups that that's who pays for that 20%, you know, upside. So that's often the second bite of the apple that they talk about. And they're mm-hmm. going to bring a lot of resources to bear to help, you know, that, that 20% upside be sometimes even more valuable than the initial sale of the 80%. So great incentive, great, you know, incentive alignment, you know, amongst parties in that case, ours is different. So in our case, you know, oftentimes we would set up um, sort of long-term incentive compensation programs for management. There could also be, you know, earn outs potentially or, or structured any number of ways, you know, to reward over the next, you know, three, four five years, reward a seller for growth. Uh, that would be the earn out, but really management would then become part of this long-term incentive compensation program where they're incented for growth and particularly expansion of the bottom line of the business, but all supported by Encore One, our deal-making experience and and sort of board level support. So do of you that growth. completely let go? I mean, like, so the, cause like you said, in the typical PE structure, you like, if I wanted to sell my company, I might roll anywhere between five and 25% or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I would, in order for me to get my money back, you, you have to sell it again. Right? right. So do you usually, is the owner completely paid out then? And then that, then your goal is to literally be the transition plan with the management team. So is the owner getting full liquidity at, at closing for the most part? Yeah, for the most part. So ideally, it would be 100% buyout. But you know, there's oh, wow. always okay. a situation, uh, you know, potentially where for some reason, maybe you have a younger leader, who, you know, has grown a business really nicely. And for estate or wealth planning reasons, wants to take some chips off the table. And I could see in that type of scenario where they still really had the passion to lead and grow the business that, you know, perhaps they would roll some percentage, but, you know, Usually not. So in our case, it would be a hundred percent buyout. You know, the challenge mm-hmm. is ha- having a co-investor, even whether it be another family office or something like that. But even the the seller in this example is, you know, we buy out a majority stake in your business, and then we, you know, endeavor to work together to really grow this company over the next, you know, several years. Well, then what? You know, in the meantime, Encore One's been working against itself in order to buy out that remaining share. So there would <laughs> yeah. just be some, you know, inherent conflict there that I guess yeah, we're yeah. looking to invo- avoid. So more likely, you know, our, you know, typical seller would be, you know, somebody who's reached retirement age or, you know, they're just sort of, you know, done or near done uh, working in the business. And, you know, they'd like to remove themselves altogether or put themselves in you know, a more strategic board level position. You know, we've, we've done that as well. Put sellers on the board of the company they just sold, which, you know, if that's a desire, that can be a really great, great outcome, but they've got a management team there that that's going to grow the business. So I wouldn't call our deals, you know, they're not, there's not less proceeds or anything like that to be had. Usually the dynamics of the mature sort of business services companies that we're looking at, you know, don't necessarily 
uh, warrant warrant a need they're they're perfect they're they're good candidates for the 100 percent buyout Mm -hmm. scenario and then you know any carrot that we would have any sort of additional upside would be in the form of what we'd call an an earnout, and that's Mm -hmm. you know usually bonus structure or something like that yep gravy completely additive to the the proceeds that are received on day one well, I think it's super like super good to note this stuff because if I'm a seller and I'm looking okay, because like, you know, I mean, as a seller in this in the low market, mid market, like you're talking about, you know, the, so our principle number two and our five growth and exit planning principles, your financial targets, like how much money you need at closing is a big deal, right? Because you could be going down this route with a private equity firm, and not realizing that you're gonna have to roll this, and you're not gonna have liquidity on that. So yeah, your balance sheet might look great, but like you might not have the cash, and or like knowing that you're going to have to sell the business at some point. So I just think it, it's so important because I don't think there is a right or wrong. Like you and I were talking about before we got on the show is it's just a matter of what's right for that person. So like principle right. one is what are their drivers and understanding what's important to them? Because if someone wanted growth capital to continue growing and then flipping it again, like that's, that's totally different than what you're talking about because you're talking about asset appreciation. So asset appreciation. So like the actual value of the company continually going up for cash flow. So, you know, and, Maybe in those two, maybe we can kind of compare and contrast those two uh, structures again, Paul. Like when you know, when when you talk about a private equity firm, their main goal is the internal rate of return or the the, the hurdle rate for the investors, right? They have to return um, a profit for the for the investors at a specific time. So then, therefore, they're they're you know potentially utilizing as much debt as possible, or you know hopefully a healthy amount. But there's the opportunity to over leverage the company because of that. And then how you're actually how they are actually investing in the company. So there's a lot of people when they sell to a PE firm, like okay, well now I want to buy all this stuff, <laughs> right? But then they don't really they didn't have this whole conversation about budgetary processes and what the strategic plan is. Mm. And then also and then the third the third part of that is the ongoing management involvement. So compare that to what your situation is like, okay, how do you you know you say the opus group because again you got the or that with Encore One you have you're just a you're just a percentage of a big huge huge portfolio, right? So there's like a I mean that's what you are. So then how do you how do you handle like the ongoing availability of, you know, investments inside of that specific asset or that company? And does that make sense? Cause I think it's really important to note, like, you know, when someone, when someone's selling, what mm-hmm. is going to, what's going to happen after the fact? Yeah. So I think maybe the answer to the first point, so, you know, is almost an issue of control. So you're the seller and probably the founder of a business that, you know, you've grown over 20 to 40 years. And, you know, you fought like crazy to grow it. And now, you know, you've got this opportunity to sell it for a big number um, and roll 20%. Well, that's a different role when you come into work every single day. So now you're the proud owner, proud minority owner of a company with a bunch of debt on it where you don't have any control and you've got, you know, some different folks potentially to answer to. Again, it's a great situation for, for, you know, sort of the right deal and the right company and the right industry with the right growth opportunities and sort of mutual aligned interest between the seller and, and the equity group in that example. But, you know, it just doesn't always make sense or it's not for everybody. So something you know, like the, like the name of your podcast to consider is sort of life after the sale or life after business. Yeah. What's that actually going to look like? And that's an important, you know, thing to, to consider, I guess, alternatively, you know, Encore One, you know, our interest touched on it a little bit, but is in what we would, you know, we say broadly manufacturing, distribution, business services companies, but really those sort of asset light, good 
free cash flowing business services companies delivering a essential service on site to a customer are particularly attractive to us. And in these types of these types of businesses, because there is good free cash flow, you know, the avenue to growth usually isn't buying a bunch of new CapEx, for example. It's going to be through, you know, consolidation, buying the slightly smaller competitor in the, you know, adjacent territory, for example. So if, mm-hmm. you know, we're buying a platform business that's a, you know, five million in, in EBITDA and twenty-five or, or thirty million dollars in in revenue with just accounts receivable, and that's what they need in order to grow. You know, likely that company's going to have good free cash flow, and if they want to buy the five hundred thousand dollar EBITDA company next door, so to speak, or in another territory, they're going to be able to do that pretty easily through their own cash flow. However, if there was some larger transformative transaction where you know, we needed to pay an equally high multiple for another company that was also, you know, 5 million in EBITDA. So sort of combining two, two businesses of the similar size where there would need to be equity support, you know, that would certainly come from Encore One. And it's kind of part of our, I think, the expectation that, you know, Encore One and the family trust would support those kind of growth opportunities as well. If again, they made, made a lot of business sense. So I think this, does that answer your question about how yeah, we no, kind I, of support it, the no, businesses? It, it does because I just think it's like, you know, just understanding what is the ability to even like, you know, like from budgeting, like how do we buy new stuff? How do we continue to grow? Right. I mean, I just think, like you said, like with that many private equity firms and that many family offices, like you're just going to have to figure out how everybody's processes work. And then, you know, maybe kind of shed some light on how the management structure works. Cause like, I think in the PE world, you, you probably have similar to your world, but like you have from micromanaging and we're going to be talking every day, doing board, board meetings. And like, we've got people and systems and processes that we want to put onto your situation versus the complete opposite. Uh-huh. And you know, because in the PE, you know, there's time sensitivity in the PE world, right? So they're trying to get that rate of return versus, you know, how do your decisions made and how is the integration and, and, uh, uh, and balance with management? Yep. So kind of talking to the kind of future professionalization of the business uh, a little bit, I guess, broadly speaking, I would say, you know, our style is more supportive, which could be a euphemism for hands off. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But, you know, we're not a private equity fund. So, you know, the typical private equity fund would have a team of, you know, if not resources, you know, real operating partners on hand. So, you know, folks that are industry experts and, you know, a particular business segment that can come in and really help, you know, grow and professionalize a a business. And, you know, there's always, always gaps in, in, you know, again, your typical middle market company in order to sort of professionalize it and set it up for future scalability and growth. But I guess the companies that we're investing in, Encore One, you know, they're not necessarily broken day one, you know, they don't need to be fixed in order to grow. They're, they're in, you know, attractive industries that are, as I said, these essential business services. They're usually companies where the service can't be offshored, for example. It's not going to be easily, you know, disintermediated or upended by technology. They're, but, you know, they're not growing at 20% either. So they're not, right. you know, tech companies or some cool, you know, retail or consumer packaged good business or anything like that. That's also exciting, but also very, very cyclical. These are pretty steady businesses that are hopefully growing with, you know, GDP because they're providing good, good services to their customers. So, 
Yeah, I think that answers my question. Then I'm curious of like when you, because I think it's all tied together when we were talking about the management team, Paul, because you and I had talked on our last call about, you know, because you just said they're not broken, but they're not obviously, you know, skyrocketing and institutionalized or how, you know, the super mature professional on the back end Mm -hmm. or whatever. So maybe kind of talk through about what that means to you as like as a buyer and then as a future partner of these companies, because you know, there's, there's that happy medium where there's a good rate of return or there's, there's a good, you know, there's good investment for you, but then there's a good fair market sale for the owner. And then how you have to align the ops and the people and all that stuff. Because, so maybe start with like what you're seeing. That's not a fit because people aren't doing things right. So from you just put your, you know, obviously you always have it on, but the buyer's hat on and like, yep. what is, what are you seeing with these companies where you're just like, there's no way we touch that with a 10 foot pole because of all these reasons. Yeah, so you're right. There is a happy medium. So maybe to to back up and complete my earlier thought. So while we're not there to run the business day to day for them and and really fix it, as I was giving in the in the private equity example, you know, mm-hmm. we do want them to professionalize themselves a little bit. So oftentimes they don't have audits. We're going to start getting financial audits from, you know, a good size accounting firm. We're going to make sure they have the good the right legal support. They've got the right benefits and insurance programs in place. And, you know, there's actually an employee handbook with an ethics hotline and, (laughs) you know, all those good practices that would simply be, you know, oftentimes be wasted costs. You know, usually there's a good sales team, maybe operations team, but there might not be a super strong accounting and finance, you know, department. So, you know, it's not all day one lard on a bunch of costs onto these businesses, but where there are gaps and, you know, not all those things are often gaps, but it's usually some, some combination you can know, I, can we, I ask we a try question to fill, on that? fill in those, fill in those gaps. Yep. So I, you, you worded it very, like it was, cause as you we were, as you we were talking about that, I was like, okay. I, and you said wasted costs. And it was so funny is like, I was actually going to ask you is like, and how, you know, when you're talking about this professionalization of this stuff, um, which I, I know you're going to continue into I, it. it do you, do you see it because the owner doesn't understand necessarily the difference between their annual income and distribution check and the value of the company because the employee handbook audits, I mean, you know, audit could be, you know, 20 to 40 grand. Right. And they're just going, I don't need to do that shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so is it because it's, they're, they're looking at the annual cash flow game instead of the value creation. And then like, I'm just curious, cause I, I think you're right. Cause it's not wasted costs, obviously, cause it brings value to it, but it, it's perceived wasted costs by the people you're talking about. Yep. No, I think there's some of that. So yeah. Are, are they doing things or making decisions to create value in the business? Or are they trying to create income for themselves? I mean, there's a real, a real difference there. You know, are they running a, a business, which is, you know, a lifestyle business or a family business, or are they running a company? And those things aren't wrong. You know, it's just, I mean, it's who they are, but you know, the companies we're buying, we're looking at this really great 40 year old, you know, $30 million revenue company that, provided a lot of jobs, and a lot of income for that family and the employees' families for a long time, perfectly commendable. But as long-term investors, and again, I'm talking decades, you know, how mm-hmm. do you set a company up for, you know, the next 40 years of growth? You've got to make some changes in order to allow it to, you know, be able to scale and be, you know, successful with, you know, future M&A ventures, that kind of thing. So, we're taking this $30 million company, but I'm not looking at, you know, sort of the historical 30 year, 30, you know, 40 years under with 30 million of revenue. I'm thinking about how is this going to be a hundred million dollar company? And it's just a different, different mindset. So 
that's the mindset and I guess support, you know, we provide management who is busy working in the business and commercializing it. And we take on that role in some regards of what, you know, a typical CEO of a, a larger business would otherwise do. And, you know, we provide that guidance and the right resources and also the right, you know, uh, risk mitigation tools, or at least, you know, bring up those conversations around, you know, how do you, how do you grow this, this business safely? Well, and it's, uh, you know, and by the way, that, that stuff is not very enjoyable for the owners who have gotten it because they like to actually sell, fix something, create solutions. I mean, it is, it's just drudgery work for the most part. However, it is value creation. <laughs> so, you know, kind of going and, and sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but the, you know, when you're looking at these companies, you know, so what, what are people, so obviously that's a pretty solid happy medium, right? Where you can put some basic processes and procedures. You guys have resources from tax and audit and legal and all that, you know, HR, IT, all the, the basic backend stuff. Uh-huh. Um, what are things that you will like run away from and why? So like, when you think about the owners that are playing the, maybe the income game and you know, how like, or just other things that you might have come across where you have this massive gap from what the owner thinks it's worth versus what it actually is because of these reasons that you're, that you're seeing? Yeah, some of the reasons I think that have popped up over the years, but are certainly uh, prevalent today as well, is, you know, there's great sort of philosophical alignment between Encore One and this potential seller of a, a business. And, you know, we get to talking and you learn more about the company and you learn, you know, they've grown so nicely recently, the economy has been good, but turns out, you know, it's been on the back of two customers and now they have you know, a growing business with actually increasing risk because they've got some, you know, customer concentration, for example, or the business has grown nicely recently and, you know, the owner is now burned out. They just don't want to, they can't work any harder. And it's, you know, Mm -hmm. the challenge is, is, you know, they hadn't set up the, you know, the management team or the front office to kind of scale with that kind of, you know, velocity and growth and, you know, number of new transactions. There's lots of, you know, new revenue coming in, but they're kind of doing it with the same you know, group of people and maybe poor, you know, processes and procedures in place that don't really allow for that. So they're growing, but instead of working 40 or 50 hours a week, they're, they're, they're working 70 or 80 and they're just tired. So they want to sell it for, you know, max value off of that high peak and they want to walk out the door and there's nobody else to run the company. So that's, (laughs) that's kind of, why not? That sounds like a good deal, right? (laughs) A challenge, not that there's not a deal there to be had, but there's just going to be a real price for it. And what the and what the price might be for that, and so sort of depending on their mindset, you know, sometimes you can address those issues or you know, kind of you know, cordon off or or square the 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 risks away, and you know, sometimes you can't, which is okay too. There's buyers for those deals, you know, they're called strategic buyers, and uh, they'll, they'll pay up and move quickly for it. But, you know, if something else you care about besides value is, you know, the people, the legacy, et cetera, the name, the standing in the community, you know, that, that might also be the other, the other price for that, that high value of a, you know, a company that hasn't been really set up professionalized or set up for growth necessarily. So elaborate on that, Paul, uh, would you, because I, I talk a lot about that. Um, but I think you just hit on it. So the difference between strategic and financial, which you would be considered a financial buyer and then why there was a deal to be had there with a strategic. So what's your different definition of a strategic and maybe elaborate on why the, the like we call them the, the drivers which is the first principle, the legacy and stuff like that might be sacrificed. So, cause what I'm, what I'm alluding to is sometimes you can hit your price 
but you sacrifice other things and you don't realize until after the fact. So maybe explain your definition of strategic, why there's a deal to be had and what might be sacrificed in that situation. Yeah. So the strategic is just, you know, generally the, the bigger player in the industry, either they've got a similar business model, similar customers, or maybe they're selling a similar product and service in an adjacent market, something like that, but they're just far bigger. You've got something they want and there's some risk in the business, but you know, they're a, a large company who's already, you know, commercialized whatever product and service it is. And they are willing to live with the risks that some of the things I, I described, you know, that, that I presented, you know, whether it's kind of a lack of management, you know, they don't necessarily care about that because they're going to bring in their own management team as well as, you know, procedures, for example, that will allow those managers to manage, you know, this additional incremental amount of, you know, revenue and customer relationships without adding any additional expense and more than likely they're not taking away some expense that they're, that they're acquiring. Mm -hmm. So that also allows them to, to pay up, you know, that's accretive to their, their bottom line. And they're able to pass some of that savings onto the seller in the form of additional proceeds in the sale, you know, whether it's regulatory or, or otherwise, you know, there's sometimes inherent risks in certain businesses and in certain industries that they're already familiar with and they're just willing to, to live with and, and look past and they're not discounting the enterprise value of that business for, for those risks. Uh, right, because right. the They're combination still their... of the businesses is going to, you know, eliminate it, particularly like a customer concentration issue, for example. Right, right. They're still getting their multiple that any that you would have paid, but they're doing it in ways that you can't do or don't want to do. Right. Um, so when you, you know, when you think about the financial buyer like yourself, and or and or honestly, ESOP or private equity, no matter what, the management team is so crucial. And I think about. The, the challenge is that a lot of the root problems of these um, challenges come back from the owners playing income games, trying to get to that income. They're, they're solving for the wrong problem. I'm solving for income versus solving for value. And, you know, the management team is so crucial. And that, so like the challenge that I had is like, you know, we needed to hire like expensive people to get to the next level. And they come straight out of your, straight out of your pocket when you got, you know, three to three to 500 and some thousand dollar people sitting on your bench. So maybe give your example of what you look at for in a management team and why it's so worth it for the owners to, to go through that hard work to find those people. Yeah. Well, I think that management team, as you say, especially nearing the, you know, as you're thinking about retirement or exiting from the business, you know, you can still enjoy the income on, on their labor that you'd otherwise enjoyed. But hopefully again, as the company grows, not, not, you know, sort of working equally as hard or, or not nearly as hard as you would have otherwise had to, to work. I think investing in management, like, you know, making any project investment in capital equipment, there's going to be a return on those individuals and you need to monitor their performance and hold them accountable. But, you know, it should lead to real incremental value, if not income as well. So I don't think investing in management today is a, is a bad thing, or you're not necessarily giving up some, some future income. And it certainly, you know, helps to create, you know, future, future value uh, as well for the business upon a, upon but, a sale. I think anybody would find a strong management team uh, attractive. But so, no, and I, and I agree with maybe I'll, I'll, I'll go one layer deep. So like, let's say I'm a, an owner that's, you know, on my way out and, because I think what ends up happening is say, okay, I want to be out in two years. Hopefully, it's a little bit longer than that. But, you know, a strategic buyer might not care about the management team as much because there might be redundancies. So, I'm going to play games to make my EBITDA look good, right? So, that's, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars maybe out of my bottom line. 
that, mm-hmm. you know, could, which literally could be a million dollars if you times, you know, 200 by five. <laughs> so they, you know, they, they do what they have to do to get to that point. But then let, let's say I did that and I'm sitting across the table from you. What is your process of being able to analyze those managers? Right. So, and how would you perceive that value? So how would that be reflected into how you would price it? And what are you looking for in a management team that says, okay, this is, you know, this is actually a rock solid team and we're willing to pay for it. And how would, how would that be reflected into to how you price the, the actual value? I think as far as pricing, you know, whether or not you have a management team and a real transferable business or not is, is not so much an additional turn of EBITDA per se. You know, there might be some of that, but I think it's whether or not you even have a deal. Um, it's sort of, it's more binary than, than that. And I think maybe the expectation is that if we're going to make an offer, there is a management team. Otherwise, you know, and the management team, again, primarily being around that president or chief operating officer or really longtime general manager who still has, you know, 10 more years in the tank. They can't also be the same age as the, the owner and, and, you know, nearing retirement themselves. So, you know, that it doesn't necessarily have to be a long-term stable management team. I've seen it before where business owners, you know, recognizing they need to sell the business and kind of set it up for sale, move themselves to like chairperson roles and call themselves, you know, uh, mm-hmm. chief administrative officers or something like that. But then they go <laughs> out, hire an executive recruiter from, you know, who finds a president from the industry who is there to do a job, which is really kind of demonstrate that they can run the business without the owners in place. I think that's a pretty, a pretty thoughtful tactic, take some investment, but you know, the investment isn't, the return on that investment isn't necessarily a higher multiple. It's just whether or not you get a deal at all. Uh, that's very well put, man. <laughs> Seriously. Like, and I mean, I think that that's a big, big struggle. <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of people have. And it's not a, a huge sunk cost. I mean, if you've owned a business for a long time and have enjoyed some distributions out of it and, you know, good income, I mean, one year of paying somebody $250,000 isn't going to, you know, you know, negate that return, I guess you've gotten on the business, you know, up, up until this point. And the other thing that happens, and maybe there's some benefit and value to having a good management team that can run and grow the business is I've seen, you know, before company's been around a long time, it just kind of putzes along, uh, you know, it does well in better economic times, a little softer during recessions, but, you know, never completely hits the wall or starts to lose money. And then you say, you say, well, why haven't you ever, you know, gone past 50 million in revenue? And the answer is usually, well, I didn't want to work any harder, or I didn't want to invest in the team. And, you know, I guess that's understandable uh, if you're enjoying a nice family business with a good, good lifestyle and, and that kind of thing. But it also does raise some level of skepticism that may be unnecessary. You know, if the team mm-hmm. were there to run and grow the business, it would just kind of keep potentially growing on a nice trajectory. And that's, that's much more attractive than a, uh, to any investor than a company that just kind of, you know, bounces around um, sort of middling between, you know, uh, a narrow range of, of revenues. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And like, like you said, it's, if you don't want to work that hard, then hire people to do it for you. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a win-win. You know, as we're wrapping up here, Paul, when you're thinking about, you know, the person, whether it's someone that's listening here or that you're sitting in front of, you know, what are the questions that they should be asking you and, and other people to make, to understand what the right fit is? 
you know, so if there was, if there was someone that was looking at you versus private equity or not, like what should, what they should, what should they be asking you to make sure that all the stars align? I think sort of, you know, if, if they care, I guess, you know, questions about, you know, their, what's there, what's the seller's legacy going to be, you know, upon the sale of this business, maybe look, maybe a better way to say it, uh, and, and maybe more credible is to look at the history of the other businesses that they have in their portfolio. You know, how long have they held them? How much have they grown? Talk to the management teams of those other portfolio companies in this case, and just ask them what their experience has been with their buyer. That can say a lot. You know, sometimes there's not all home runs in a, in a portfolio. And sometimes, you know, life after the sale was, was different than what was expected. I mean, to mm-hmm. be able to have a real open, transparent conversation, that would be really valuable, I would think, you know, to kind of think about, you know, in addition to funds and proceeds um, and, and really great valuations, which we're all experiencing today, you know, what was life like for you or, or what's life like been for the other business owners in your portfolio and, and the management teams as well. You know, the, some of the businesses we've owned now for 17 years and 12 and 13 years, respectively, with no intention of selling them. And they've already grown three and, and four times in a couple of cases. And that's pretty powerful with the, some of the same leadership at the, at the top of the house who, you know, is now enjoying a really, you know, incredible and unique sort of wealth creation opportunity for themselves that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten with either the old ownership who, you know, had to sell and retire or with other types of buyers. And I think that that potentially can be pretty, eye-opening to kind of understand yeah. that as well. Just on that note, like, so what are the, some of the structures that you guys do for the managers? Is it like phantom stock or is it just, you know, comp on profit or value creation? How do you guys actually tie that together? Yeah. Not, not, not to give away all the secret sauce, but it's probably not that unique either, but it's, you know, you know, comp and bonus structure as well as, you know, potentially a percentage of the bottom line. So I don't know if I'd call it phantom stock, um, but more just a deferred hmm. compensation uh, yeah, yeah. program. Uh, awesome. As well, which is pretty unique in that, you know, again, to me, some stock programs rely on the future sale of the business in order to right, kind of fund right, that liquidity, right. which is also, you know, risky and timing can become an issue. And, you know, people have their own needs, you know, managers have their own needs for liquidity, personal, you know, issues, health issues come up, that kind of thing versus, you know, the chance to take some chips off the table every year as you're employed, as the company's growing, you know, there's a, there's a risk return issue there to, as well to kind of consider. And sometimes it's nice to have the, the funds in your pocketbook. And it, it makes sense because again, you know, Encore One isn't ever intending to, to sell the business or manage the company mm-hmm. for some sort of big exit. That's awesome. You know, I totally agree. I mean, I've talked to people where they no, oh, yeah, I've got Phantom stock and there's no you know, sight in the future of one. There's that's nothing ever... more risky you can invest in than the, the, the private stock of some small company, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think any financial planner would, would advise you to put a lot of, <laughs> a lot of chips in that business, but we all know the home run stories. And the reason, you know, there's home run stories is because it's really risky. Um, and <laughs> yeah. so there, you know, if for every home run there, you know, you know, it can't be a home run a hundred percent of the time. So just something to consider as, uh, you know, one is nearing uh, the age of retirement potentially, or just, uh, you know, has a extended tenure with a, with a particular company. 
So um, before we get into the final wrap up of getting your contact information, and everything, I've got one last question for you is like, what are you seeing in the marketplace? Like, you know, cause you're out there scouring through deals and stuff like that. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing, I'm just curious for myself and the listeners, you know, is it, are you seeing the, the economy kind of, you know, get choppy? Are you seeing people actually getting older and wanting out more deal flow? I'm just curious and like, you know, kind of just your overall temperature of what you what's out there. Yeah, no, there's plenty of deal flow and opportunities. We look at them every single day, but, you know, it's hard to check 10 or 12 boxes. And, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, you might have a willing seller or a willing buyer, but, you know, whatever the deal or the opportunity is, it's just not right for the other party. So I think most, you know, financial buyers would tell you they look at hundreds of deals and, you know, hope to close a couple every year. And, you know, Encore One's probably even more selective where, you know, we're looking at the same couple hundred deals a year, but, you know, we're looking to close one every year or two. So they're very select, you know, privately negotiated, you know, bespoke mm-hmm. opportunities where, you know, the parties are really, you know, mutually aligned and, and there's a high degree of trust and we're sort of venturing together, endeavoring together to, you know, make a transaction happen. So, and, and there's, you know, a lot of money and really great advisors, you know, chasing these opportunities and providing good advice and steering parties to the different types of deals or, or structures or whatever it might be. So there's a lot of competition out there. Um, but no doubt there's a lot of, you know, baby boomers who are looking to sell their business and recognize there's a lot of capital on the sideline and valuations are high and there's plenty of available debt. So it's uh, certainly a, a good time to be exploring these things. And I would say anytime is a good time to be exploring these things because it always, you know, is meaningful to be sort of prepared for these these decisions when when they come up. But uh, yeah, it's it's active, no doubt. And there's, uh, you know, but there's no shortage of the need, I would say, as well for education, because there is so much information coming at business owners in particular. So to, it's uh, valuable, you know, with your business advisor, accountants, attorneys, or, you know, a, you know, sort of transition consultants to explore these things. Uh, there's lots of options for a wide spectrum of, of financial buyers, strategic options, you know, other chances for liquidity, recapitalization, that kind of thing. So, um, and, and the economy seems to be, you know, sort of headline news aside, you know, pretty stable and, and growing. Um, and so I don't think there's any, now rates are even lower. So not any immediate near, you know, fears of recession, mm-hmm. but you'd hate to start planning. And when, when those fears are more front and center Legit. and apparent, yeah. so, you know, no time like the present. Paul, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, I can be reached at my email address, which is uh, Paul. Dot Moffitt, M-O-F-F-A-T-T, at Encore One, E-N-C-O-R-E-O-N-E.com. Otherwise, my phone number is 952-656-4539, and uh, I can be found on LinkedIn as well. Paul, it's been a blast having you on the show, man. Hey, I appreciate it, Ryan. This was a lot of fun, and uh, um, look forward to talking soon. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Paul. If there's one big takeaway, it is there are a ton of different buyers out there. 
Family offices could be a significantly viable option for you that checks a lot of boxes, but you don't know until you don't know. So I'm going to recommend that you attend one of our boot camps if you want to know all the different exit options, how companies are valued, what your financial targets are, ways in curious the value of your company. You're probably hearing me repeat myself over and over and over again because I believe that educating yourself is the number one thing that you can do to intentionally engineer the next chapter of your business, increase the value of your company, and go get the exit that you want. So that way you can perpetuate your legacy and be happy no matter what. Check out the boot camps. They're in Dayton and Minnesota, and the link is in the show notes. Other than that, I will see you next week.